Welcome to the Botsteber Austrian American Podcast. The transatlantic relations are, are a very real thing, and and they sometimes they are really demanding and challenging and difficult. And in a nutshell, you can see what's going on in that big, big field if you look at the situation of American students studying in Vienna with Leszczycki. Our guest today is Dr. Christiana Tabinko. In addition to a Botsteber CEU fellowship in 2020, in 2019, Christiana received a bias grant to travel to New York to further her research on Theodore Leszczycki. Her proposal was titled American Pianist Studying with Theodore Leszczycki in Vienna, 1878-1913, and is part of an ongoing three-year project you play exactly as if you came from America. Transatlantic relations and the anti-American bias in the musical life of the German Empire and the Austro-Hungarian monarchy, 1880-1915. Welcome, Christiana. Thank you for being here today. Thank you, Adriana. It's lovely to be here. Would you mind telling us a bit about yourself? Yeah, I am a musicologist currently residing in Berlin, Germany. And um, I'm very interested right now and these days in transatlantic musical relations around um, 1900. And uh, parallel to that work, I'm a teacher at um, one of the older Berlin conservatories of music, the Universität der Künste, University of the Arts, in uh, what used to be West Berlin. And um, so I'm looking forward to our term that's starting uh, very soon. And I'm trying to uphold as much of my research on transatlantic relations in music around 1900 as possible. How did you become interested in musicology? Yeah, I, I used to start with German studies and uh, English literature. And after some time, I felt that I was lacking music in my life because I'd always been... Um, uh, interested in playing the piano and, and listening to music. So I uh, tried to enter the conservatory in Freiburg and I succeeded. And so I embarked upon this whole graduate program of studying music. And while I was doing that, studying the piano, studying conducting and, and singing and, and doing all these chores and music theory that you have to do, I, of course, did also do some classes in musicology and music history, and I became just so interested in what this was all about and in discussing and thinking about music and, and seeing all those, let's say, transfer effects to literature and the languages that I decided after I had graduated from all these programs, English, German, music, that I decided to go into musicology and write a dissertation. And then by and by, I got more involved with the discipline and I went to the United States and came back and started teaching at conservatories myself and so this is where this has led me. Tell us about Theodor Leszczycki. Who was he? Yeah, Theodor Leszczycki was 
a pianist in the 19th century. He was born in Galicia in 1830, and Galicia at that time was belonging to the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And when Lischetitzky was a young adult, he um, already started teaching the piano. I think even before he was 20, he already had his first pupils, and he also evolved himself into a wonderful pianist. So after some time, he was also involved in the founding of the St. Petersburg uh, Conservatory in Russia, and he worked there for many years. And then later in life, when he was in his late 40s, he transferred to Vienna in Austria. And there he kind of opened a private practice of or a private studio of piano teaching. And he attracted hundreds and hundreds of students. And anyway, since these, his early beginnings as a piano teacher, he had been extremely successful. So for all of his lifetime, we may think of about one and a half thousand students, international students that he had. And what I find so very interesting is that he had about one third of those students uh, were American students coming to him from mostly from um, 1880 on. So during his time in Vienna. So why, what was it about him that, um, and why were so many American students going to him? I understand that he was, of course, renowned, but uh, what was happening at that time that made this um, so popular to do, if that's the right way to put it? This has been uh, discussed by contemporaries already. So people were wondering why was he able to attract so many students and, and really earn a fortune with piano teaching and why were Americans especially attracted to Vienna and to to his studio specifically so I think I have several explanations to offer so first of all we may think of him as an elderly teacher with um, a household full of assistants and wives and and sisters-in-law that were around him and residing in a beautiful villa in in um, Vienna. So this was kind of a brilliant spot to attract people who wanted to, let's say, bond with a, with a truly European household and artistic community. Then he was known for a very, very systematic approach to piano playing. So whoever was successful in approaching Lischetitzky, because he also warded off some people, so whoever was successful had a guarantee somehow of obtaining a certain technique and 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 entering a certain community of of piano lovers and and pianists and also of having access to what were then the most professional and most successful pianists at the time because Lischetitzky through his life and of course through his connections at the time was very close to people like Anton Rubinstein or um, Wanda Landowska, even Franz Liszt, who, who was the most important pianist in the 19th century, they were guests and they were acquainted with him and they can, sometimes came to call him and they sometimes even came to play for his students. So if I had been an American student and I had known there's somebody that has a system that can offer me a certain artistic community and, and that has a very clear hierarchy of promotion because uh, uh, Lischetitzky would start on Basley 
You start with one of his assistants, then you may play to him, then you may play in the private concerts, then maybe you can be invited to supper afterwards. So he had a very clear system of advancement. And if I had known that at the time, I think I too may have considered joining his class and, and becoming a student of his. And what was even more is that when American students returned to the United States, they took the, let's say, the etiquette of a teacher of the Lischetizky method with them. And they promoted themselves and marketed themselves in musical magazines, journals, newspapers, as teachers of the Lischetizky method, whatever that is. But somehow on the American market, let's say starting around 1900 already, this was a tag that worked extremely successfully. I think this is what made most of the attraction. And then there were other, let's say, more emotional strategies that Leszczycki, or even manipulative stress, uh, strategies that Leszczycki implemented. I have talked about something like a shock and awe strategy of teaching because he would sometimes be extremely aggressive. He would throw fits and tempers. And then students were struck and, and shocked and, and some of them would turn away and weep and, and run away and, and leave that house of his. And then sometimes he would turn to them again and invite them and allure them back into his uh, studio. And this kind of emotional turmoil, I feel, led to a certain situation where students were mm, bonding with him in, in what we may consider not a very natural and, and healthy way, but they were bonding with him nonetheless, and they would talk to each other. They had strong bonds to other students. And, and I think all of this, the pianistic skills, the emotional uh, specifics of Lischetizky, the international connections, all of this made the appeal of his studio. So with all these students traveling to uh, Vienna to study with him, how did it come to be that you had to travel to New York for your research? The first time that I came across his name, I, I mean, I had heard his name really decades ago, because you over here in Europe, if you have to do with piano playing, you do hear his name from time to time. But the first time that I really heard detailed information about the way Lischetizky worked was when I read through a manuscript that I had found at the Berkeley Library, and that was a manuscript of somebody who had not studied with Lischetizky, but who had had a pupil who had wanted to study with Lischetizky. So here's this American pianist residing in California who has a student that wants to go and study with Lischetizky. And that student went to Lischetizky around 1900-1901 and reported back to the Californian pianist how it had been. And they reported so you have to go there, you have to play to him, it's really, di it's difficult, it's expensive, he will possibly refer you to one of his assistants, and then the assistants will teach you this and that, and so and so. And the Californian pianist, Hugo Mansfeld, that I was dealing with, he was really not liking the system. And I thought, why is that? What, what exactly was happening in Leschetizky's classes? Why did he have all these assistants? And, and why did people flock to him? Why did all these mothers uh, go with their uh, daughters and, and sit there and, and want them to play for Leschetizky, the big Leschetizky? 
So I try to find further material on that situation. And what we do in musicology is we go back to all these encyclopedias and dictionaries and articles, and I found hardly anything. I really found hardly anything. In fact, I encountered one single name, book had moot all over the place. And I, at some point, I decided I have to call book had moot. And I, I learned that he is this a private German scholar uh, who has published a few things about Leschetizky without even knowing himself uh, very much about Leschetizky. So Burkhardt was mainly going back to material that Leschetizky's assistants and his sister-in-law had published already in the early 1900s or 1910s. So I thought, where is all the original material? Where are all the lists? Are there further documents somewhere, anywhere? Can I find anything? Are there sources that I can go back to to find out more? So Boca tells me that in New York, there's this private archive attached to the New York Theodore Leschetizky Association. And so after I had made that phone call to Burkhard Mood, I thought, okay, I will probably have to make another phone call or an email contact and contact that association in New York. And this is how I got in touch with Alison Thomas from the New York Leschetizky Association. And I asked her, is it true that you have documents pertaining to Leschetizky's private life in his studio in Vienna? And she got back to me very kindly and she said, yes, that is true. And because that archive is so extensive and there's no catalog, so there's no list of things that will tell you what exactly is there and how much is there. Are there letters? Are there student lists, calendars? What, what exactly is it that that archive holds? So she could only give me an overview. And all of that led me thinking, okay, I guess I will have to travel to New York and look at the archive and find out what's there and whether that will be able to tell me more about the studio situation in Vienna. And that's how it came about that I applied to the Botsterberg Foundation to ask for funding to be able to make that trip. Do you know how they, the materials came to be there in New York? Yeah, this was quite an involved process to, to cut it short. It came there. Uh, through Leschetizky's daughter, Therese. Okay. You, would you describe your trip to me? What was it like? Yeah, that was, I have to say, so, so I, ha I had made contact with Alice and Thomas months in advance, even before I, I wrote down my proposal for the Botsreville Foundation, because I, I wanted to make sure that if I write down on my proposal, I want to travel to New York, I had to make sure that Alice and Thomas would open her door to me. And uh, because the material is sitting at her private apartment in New York. And of course, you can't simply walk into somebody's place and say, show me all the treasure uh, trunks that you have here. So I, I, I very humbly asked her whether that might be a possibility. And she was so generous and said, yes, of course, you can come. So I wrote down the proposal. And, and luckily and fortunately, I, I was very happy to receive um, a positive answer from the Botsdorf Foundation. So what I did was I, I scheduled my flight for October 2019, long before Corona hit. And I traveled at the beginning of October. And it really happened that I, I walked into uh, North Manhattan and, and uh, rang the bell at Alison Thomas's place. And she was there and she opened the door and then off we went and looked at the material together. She had several boxes of material and I found 
hundreds and hundreds of letters. I found calendars by Leszczycki, student lists. He was an ardent grader of students, always tagging them with their individual achievements, whether uh, pluses or minuses or funny other little signs. And I found music that he had written and letters that he had written to colleagues. It was really, it was a wonderful experience. And I, I stayed at Allison's apartment for several hours a day and together we went through the material and I made hundreds of scans focused on what I was interested in, namely the situation in Vienna around 1900. And I already, when I was in New York, I felt that much more research needs to be done and can be done because it's very rare that we find such beautiful new material anywhere, any any other anywhere in the world that will give us so much new information about a certain historical context. What would you say is the significance of all the archival material you found? It's a very rare situation. I mean, we all know, and some, sometimes we are even personally involved, we all know what it is to play an instrument and to be a student of somebody. And we all know some sort of excellent virtuoso musician, singer, and we know they have probably gone through years and years of training. And since this is mostly oral history, so you go to see somebody, let's say, on a weekly basis for, let's say, five to 10 years, and then you may want to become a professional musician and so forth. Very rarely do you have documents that will testify to what exactly is happening in such a situation where a teacher teaches a student at an instrument. So you look back on those years, you think, okay, what happened? I played this and that piece, but what exactly happened? What, how did I do? How did I advance? Were there any difficulties? What, what was really going on within that black box of musical teaching? So normally we really, really don't have documents. Sometimes people later in life, they will look back and they will reminisce about what they experienced with this or that teacher. But this situation with Leszczycki is one of the very few ones where you have countless documents that testify to to everybody what was really happening, who was teaching who at what time, to what uh, uh, success and, and to what result and how much were they charging them and who played what and what little private concert and who said what, what to who and who went and played cards afterwards and who met who. And, and all of this is beautifully complementing what you can find in personal autobiographies and memory. Uh, personal biographies that look back, let's say, by people like Fanny Bloomfield Zeisler, Amy Fay, or Ed Edwin Hughes. All these people have, of course, great pianists, have looked back to their time with studying with uh, European teachers, but just very rarely would it be that you have some teacher having the same amount and pile of documents pertaining to their work. You've spoken about challenges in musicology research, and you are particularly interested, I believe, in these challenges um, about um, the black box, I heard you say. Um, how does this relate? How do you hope to take this um, archival material to... Um, to expand upon musicology research. 
this is now 2020 that we're in. And if, if Corona hadn't hit, we would have been celebrating like mad the birthday of Ludwig van Beethoven, who would have been 250 this year. So all of Germany, for example, would have been celebrating from morning to night Beethoven's works and his life. And there were, let's say, innumerous concerts planned and, and conferences and so forth. And Beethoven is a very typical example of what we in musicology consider to be a certain strand of musical life that is actually quite one-sided. Because as you know, everybody of us is involved in music in some ways. We listen to music on the radio, we listen to uh, podcast we listen we stream music we downloaded it we we have it uh, play what with whatever we do whether we are uh, working out or or doing the dishes and so forth or sometimes we sing and so forth so all of these experiences are huge and everybody's affected by music however musicology for decades has been very much devoted to the musical work so what can you see on paper analysis of music what can you hear if somebody's performing that already would be have been difficult to deal with and sometimes what has been said and written about music but musical practice as i just said so people have turned recently to the interpretation of musical works for example and of course they have dealt with sociological impacts of music who is listening to music and why why is somebody choosing let's say gangster rap and why would somebody attend a symphonic concert so these are very very difficult kinds of music and that's what music so the sociology of music is interested in and beneath that or parallel to that there's this huge field of instrumental practice and that is really hard to see through and that's really hard to deal with even though it's so superbly important for any practice of music because of course if, if there's a musician they have to have learned the instrument or they have to have learned how to sing and they had their models and they had their teachers and they had their instruments and I just feel that this is a huge field it's affecting everybody it's very important for uh, musical practice it's also very important for being able to render musical works like a sonata by Beethoven but not very much time and devotion has been given to musical practice and that's why I think Leszczycki would be a wonderful example to talk further about this and, and to dive further into that very black box. When you think about your work on Leszczycki and his students, this musical migration, what do you think the benefit or significance is of looking at the transatlantic dialogue between Austria and the United States for research purposes? This is a this is a wonderful question. The transatlantic relations are, are a very real thing and and they sometimes they are really demanding and challenging and difficult. And in a nutshell, you can see what's going on in that big, big field if you look at the situation of American students studying in Vienna with Leszczycki. They came with high expectations and many of them had, let's say, limited resources. They had a certain amount of money that their families had saved for them. They had a certain amount of time and they needed to spend that time and money very thoughtfully. So they would enroll with Leszczycki, they would work hard. They, what they expected was 
something like the stamp of European approval, or let's say a guarantee of being in touch with a European teacher, because at that time, and sometimes even in our time, to come to Europe, that has been the ground for the working ground for composers like Bach, Mozart, Beethoven, and then of course all the non-German composers, mm. just was very important for anybody who wanted to deal with that kind of music brought forth by those composers. So if you were American and you could afford it, and you would come over to Europe and study with somebody and get really close by, by simply getting close to that very household and that studio of Leszczyckis, you could expect for yourself that you could return to the United States and market yourself in a different way. We may think of this as, as somehow pathetic. Why would you want to study with a single person in Vienna when you could also study with a perfect American teacher in, let's say, Ohio, right? But of course, the infrastructure in the United States was possibly not the same as the infrastructure in, in musical cosmopoles like Vienna at the time. So there was, there, there may have been a reason for people to travel. And what I'm especially interested in is the stereotypes that Americans met with once they had hit the European ground. Because for all the expectations they had, they were sometimes met with really, really bad biases mm -hmm. from the side of European, let's say, hosts, teachers, colleagues, and so forth. So sometimes Americans would look at that time as an ordeal, the ordeal of meeting Europeans, playing to Europeans, being uh, told off by Europeans. And and still Americans would hold through and they would go through it and they would return and very, very often with fond memories. And I'm very much interested in what it was that they felt and thought and what it was that they discussed. And of course, I'm also interested in why it was that Europeans would re react to Americans the way they did. Not all of them, of course, and not in all situations, but it happened again and again. And it also happened in Leszczycki's classes. What did they encounter in terms of the, um, it almost sounds like a hostility towards them in Europe? Yeah, there were, of course, shades, right? So, and I, I dare say that Leszczycki was, in general, because I think he was exposed to a, a, a very international crowd of students, he, in general, he was very open and generous. But what happened would be, and, and this is true for his classes as well as classes with Liz, and sometimes you would also read it in reviews, that sometimes people would say about Americans, they play technically only, they are not interested in the art of music, they are more interested in music as a business, they want to make money only, they don't know about the history of music, they don't know about the grammar of music. And in each of these instances, when that happened, Americans would, of course, feel offended and they would think that's not right. Or if some of it was right, for example, that they didn't know about the grammar of music, they would feel, oh, I have to compensate for this. And then they would share that with their compatriots. And, and I'm just interested in how, how did that come about? Why would teachers say that? And how did that fit into the greater image of anti-American bias of the time, right? So, and the, the very complicated thing is that sometimes... European families that had migrated to the United States would send their offspring back to Europe 
And then if you were some, uh, let's say, some daughter coming from such a family of previously European migrants and you would go back to, Amer to, to Europe and then you would be exposed to these stereotypes. So whose side would you take? And Mansfeld, who was a European immigrant in the first place, he would take the sides of his newly American city, new American citizenship. So he too would detest other Americans who failed when playing to Franz Liszt, which is really a, a nasty situation because he, who was he to, to be so harsh upon, upon other people that were actually his, his fellows? It's, and, and then again, Leszczycki was extremely interested in making good money from his lessons. So why would he say about Americans they are interested in business only? So the closer you get into these situations and one-on-one -on -one context, the more you see how difficult it actually is to say, okay, person A is against person B and for this and that reasons. So what you can do is you can try to find out what the general things were that Americans met with and why you can, you can somehow reconstruct why that would happen. But then the closer you get, the more you see how individual decisions and, and individual resentment and, and experiences would make this or that uh, conversation so difficult. I'm really struck by how complicated um, all these perceptions become and how wrapped up they are in migration. Very much so, very much so. If you look at the situation in, I, I imagine U.S. American conservators and European conservatories today, there's another, um, let's say, one-sided perception and that is that, and, and uh, let's say migration, and that is that of students coming from Japan, China, or Korea to study over here in Germany and get their stamp of approval, if you will, even though in their home countries there too are wonderful institutions of higher learning and music. And they again may sometimes meet with biases. And I think the situation is very, very similar to the situation that we had over 100 years ago. And that's why I think it's teaching us so much to look at that situation from, from very closely. It's still relevant. Yes, very much so. Very much so. And and the, the overarching concept here is that that music is a protected space and it's tied to this geographical cultural ground of European regions, German-speaking regions, and that whoever wants to access that ground, they have to be initiated and they have to be in contact with specific people. And of course, there's a this is a matter of hierarchy within culture and, and of a very supremacy and, and of, of long lasting concepts of what is worth and who is worth what, right? And we have to go beyond that. We also have to go beyond that because of course, classical music in our time is kind of, like an endangered species. And if we want to open it up, we have to somehow get rid of all these biases that are surrounding it. What was the most enjoyable aspect of this research for you, given that you have such a zest for all of it? I wonder if this is a difficult question for you. Well, actually, what, what I find especially interesting and, and amusing all, almost is to look at the yearbooks that Theodor Leschetizky had, because... He would not only notate about, he would not only put down what he thought about his students and who he met for concerts and what opera he had seen, but he would also write down whether he had 
had fights with his wife oh. and and uh, with a he had uh, you know he was married four times right so in each of his yearbooks he would look look back on previous marriages and 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 notate when he got married and when they separated and he would also look back on what when he bought his house and what he got for his uh, christmas and and strangely enough he also notated the menstruation of his young wife so the menstrual calendar and i i thought why would he be doing this he's in his late 70s he's notating when she's feeling unwell it's really it's it's such a close look at somebody somebody's personal life and of course i may feel funny to to broach that border and 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 get beyond certain let's say limits and 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 get very close to somebody's private life but I have to consider this because the overall picture of Leszczyzki is one that is also reminiscent of some people that still teach nowadays and are still, um, let's say, living in a conservatory surrounding because what Leszczyzki did was he had these tons of students and from that tons of students, he selected three of his four wives and uh, he made them assistants and he worked with them and he was apparently also in love with other students. And all of this is is addressing a problem that we still have in conservatories and in private music teaching nowadays. And that is of uh, looking at uh, offenses and and looking at, uh, um, how do you call this in English? When when you respect somebody's um, sphere and you don't want to go beyond. and, Mm -hmm. And this ties into the rather manipulative way of his teaching like throwing fits and and being manipulative being very emotional and all of this ties into one question of what makes an excellent instrumental teacher how much of that manipulation or of crossing borders of crossing boundaries i think is the expression how much of that do we need in in training somebody and and this is coming up again and again and again it's also a question of hierarchy within orchestras how manipulative or how aggressive do we want a conductor to be with his or her orchestra this is this is a question that's extremely important for anybody who is in music Hmm. there's positions of power and the boundaries very much so very much so and and the way that Lashitetsky writes about his younger uh, wife is I, I think it's just one little detail that that ties into that what is the status of all this archival material now? Well, I have I have tried to to uh, come up with a system for each and every individual American student that I can track, and uh, right now I've just written an article for um, an international um, volume on the question of migration and of waiting uh, within the process of migration, and that will be edited by Nadia Al Baghdadi and William O'Reilly. And that volume, the the article that I wrote for that volume is dedicated to the question of how easy was it for American students to access Lischetitzky and what were the obstacles uh, for reaching him. And one obstacle, for example, was not speaking the language because Lischetitzky didn't speak English, so you had to learn German. And another obstacle was, of course, having to study mandatorily with one of his assistants. And um, then sometimes you would even not get any further beyond, let's say, two hours with him or two lessons. And still, of course, you could go back and say you have studied with him. And all of these obstacles and waiting zones, this is some particular aspect that I have dealt with. And 
in future times, I hope to be able to devote much more attention also to what exactly, again, were the stereotypes that students met with? What, how did they discourse about this? What were the individual solutions that they found for themselves to be able to tackle that and also to tackle the, the rather demanding, competitive, and sometimes even hostile European environment that they found at other places? And will the um, archival material remain kind of stored away in Mrs. Thomas's apartment? Well, Alice and Thomas and I are in, in, in close contact about the question of whether there's the possibility of digitization, because I believe that, uh, for example, the hundreds and hundreds of letters that Theodor Leschetizky exchanged with his um, second wife, Annette Esikov, who was herself an extremely virtuoso pianist and who did extensive concert tours in the latter half of the um, 19th century, all these letters would make perfect material for musicological dissertations and for finding out more about Annette Esipov's life because he really coached her sometimes once or twice a day even. He would send her letters and she would tell him about her experiences. They would be teachers for each other in the field of music in a way. And I think all of this would be extremely precious to look at and very, very um, rewarding. But of course it would be, I guess, a several year long effort to digitize it and make it accessible and archive it in a in a professional way. So I'm not sure whether this can happen soon, but I am positive that Alison Thomas and her colleagues at the association are are considering it very, very seriously. That sounds wonderful. And your work on this project, I know you've just stated that you're um, you've just written an article. What other plans do you have with this research? Well, right now I'm a guest professor at the Universität der Künste, University of uh, the Arts in Berlin, and this will be going on for one year. And after that, I will embark upon a two and a half year research phase. I have been granted wonderful funding by the Deutsche Forschungsgemeinschaft, our national uh, association for uh, the sciences and research. And I will devote all my time that I will have then to the question of what were the experiences of American students studying with Leschetizky in Vienna, with Franz Liszt in Weimar, and with Amer um, um, institutions and private teachers in Berlin at the same time? And I will try to come up with, let's say, a more systematic approach of what these experiences were, how they fed into the overall experiences of American students in Europe, and what American students could carry away to their home country after their time in a German-speaking lands. And so Theodor Leschetizky will make, let's say, one-third of, of a book that I hope to be able to publish in, let's say, about four years or so, if I may, if I may look that far into the future. Do you have any final thoughts? Anything you'd like to share with us? I can only say I, it, was, it was a wonderful coincidence that I encountered the uh, possibilities that the Batsrebe Foundation is offering for people interested in research of transatlantic relations. And I can only encourage everybody who's listening to, to look at these possibilities and these options that, that the Batsrebe Foundation is offering. And I was extremely grateful to be on the receiving ends. And, and so much of my research would not have been possible without funding from the Batsrebe Foundation. So this is just to say thank you so, so much. Thank you for saying that. Christiana, it has been such a pleasure to talk with you. 
Thank you for being with us today. Thank you, Adriana. It was lovely to talk to you too. Thank you so much for your questions. I'm going to be wishing you continued success and inspiration with your work. Thank you. The Bastiber Institute of Austrian American Studies is honored to have supported Christiana Tevinkel's project, an American pianist studying with Theodor Lyshetitsky in Vienna, 1878-1913. Part of her ongoing project, you play exactly as if you came from America. Transatlantic Relations and Anti-American Bias in the Musical Life of the German Empire and the Austro-Hungarian Monarchy, 1880-1915. This podcast was produced by Dr. Christiana Tabinkel, Elizabeth Leitzel, and myself. The two Larks and Barcarolle Opus 39 No. 1 were written and performed by Theodore Leschetitsky and sourced from the Stanford University Piano Roll Archive. Our theme music is Hungarian Dance by Underscore Orchestra. I'm Adriana Lacona. Thanks for listening. Botsteber Austrian American Podcast is produced by the Botsteber Institute for Austrian American Studies, which seeks to promote an understanding of the historic relationship between the United States and Austria, including the Habsburg Empire. To learn more about our grants, publications, events, and other programming, visit botsteberbias.org or find us on Facebook, Twitter, or YouTube.